Find us on Facebook. Just head to www.facebook.com forward slash J Air Radio. That's two R's. J Air Radio. This is the Israel Connection coming to you on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming over the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. Today we see students on university campuses facing unprecedented attacks from anti-Israel elements that have come out in force following the outbreak of Israel's war on Gaza. I have invited back Ilan Sinelnikov, who is the founder and president of the International Students Supporting Israel Movement, a speaker, blogger and a coach on the topics of Israel, campus advocacy and grassroots, ad- and grassroots activism. Ilan, born as a first-generation Israeli to a family that immigrated to Israel from Ukraine, Ilan and his family came to the United States when he was in high school. While in college, Ilan founded Students Supporting Israel, a pro-Israel grassroots movement with a mission of being a clear and confident pro-Israel voice on college campuses and to support students in grassroots pro-Israel advocacy. Now, I it, it's midnight in... Florida at the moment, where Ilan is is situated, and uh, I'm waiting for him to come on the line. We uh, there's a number of uh, incidents that we're going to be just be talking about, uh, and uh, across a number of different university campuses. Until I have Ilan with us, so I can see a picture of Ilan on my screen. Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Ilan? Yes, I can hear you. It's after midnight, uh, I suppose uh, it's a, not an easy time for you to be talking to us here in Australia in uh, the late afternoon, uh, but uh, we're here in, in any case. Now, I've introduced you already. Uh, what I want to say is that universities around the world are hosting planned and spontaneous pro-Palestine protests that are spilling into attacks on individual Jewish students. At Harvard University in the US, Jewish students were surrounded, jostled and screamed at on campus by Palestine supporters using traditional kefir scarves to block their path. So how bad is the situation for Jews at the moment on American university and college campuses, Ilan? Yes, uh, good afternoon to everyone in Australia. And um, the situation in the United States is not good. Uh, Frankly, the situation was um, not good for over a decade now with all the problems that are taking place on campus and for about a decade administrations and uh, even people outside of the universities didn't uh, really care about what is going on or didn't uh, dare to stop groups like students for justice in Palestine or even worse they were just kind of ignorant to the problem and what we have seen in the last month is that Students who just in Palestine, their friends and supporters, uh, Hamas friends and supporters on campus, I would say, just uh, show their true colors 
and they showed how they publicly support organizations like Hamas, how they publicly can't speak up or condemn the killing and the murder of 1,400 Israelis, and how they double up and even say that the summit was justified because of 75 years of occupation or whatsoever, excuses and excuses and excuses of why it's okay to kill Jews. And we see that the situation in college campuses is not just, those are not fringe voices. Some people, and I think that's why there's so much coverage about the issue, because if back in the day, like when we just started our organization, people were saying those anti-Israel voices, they're the fringe voices. We see that today it's a 50-50 battle at the universities. And the question is, what's going to be in 20, 30 years down the road? That's a fight we for sure cannot afford to lose. Well, hopefully uh, your organization, uh, Students Supporting Israel, is gaining uh, a number of uh, supporters given the situation that uh, Israel and Jews in America find themselves in. Yes, uh, you know, what we have seen since October 7th, 35 universities started a club of students supporting Israel here in the United States and in Canada. We're still waiting for our clubs to start in Australia or elsewhere, but... Uh, 35 schools uh, reached out to us and a lot of students who just wanted to do something but they didn't know how to do it or where to start. And by reaching out to us, we managed to give them those tools to get mobilized and sometimes in a matter of even 24 to 48 hours to already organize demonstrations or counter-protests at the university. So we have seen a lot of... uh, traffic coming our way of course i wish uh, we wouldn't uh, need to have and deal with all of it um, due to the circumstances and the students would be coming our way when israel is not in war but i am happy at the end of the day that we have started the organization and we've been preparing for the moment for so long and when that moment has came we were ready and we are be able to provide uh, solutions and to provide the students with the opportunity to support the position of Israel and to stand strong for the Jewish state on our college campuses across North America. So I've given one example of what's happened at Harvard University, but uh, there's a, quite a number of other examples, and maybe you can uh, fill in uh, some of the, the gaps here uh, Cornell University announced classes last Friday would be cancelled due to the extraordinary stress that students experienced after several violent threats were directed towards Jews on the university forum. And this is a report according to CNN. The day uh, off will be treated as a community day, according to the source. The impact of violent messages had a significant effect on Cornell's Jewish student population, which makes up 22% of the total student body. Uh, what... Uh, what I understand there is that there's actually been an arrest of a Cornell student uh, by the name of Patrick Day. Do you, can you tell us more about that story? For sure. And uh, frankly, at Cornell, there is no SSI club, but we are already having a group that will be putting the club together. And uh, what happened, that which is Cornell is, by the way, an Ivy League university. We're talking about a prestigious university in the United States, not just some random campus. And uh, I think the the worst of what, out of the many things that have happened there, the worst of the worst was that uh, there was a student that uh, threatened Jews and posted on social media that he's going to be shooting a Jewish cafeteria 
and that uh, he'll be killing Jews and murdering Jews and some horrible, horrible comments. And uh, that was uh, taken, picked up by the FBI. We're talking about the FBI getting involved and arresting that students. Of course, this, the post that he shared online at first were anonymous. He didn't post it with his name and his picture next to it. But it was posted in official chats of the university. And uh, the police, the FBI got involved and they arrested that person. And the question is, you know, I have seen from a student who goes to Cornell, a Jewish Zionist student, uh, he shared a post saying that the, the student that was arrested grew up in a typical suburb in uh, the northeast, you know, in typical suburb, a good suburb, attended a good high school. So it's not like he even came from a background that uh, supposed to, uh, that we would say, oh, this is not a surprise. Vice versa, I believe the background of such a student surprised us even more when he came from like a very like a medium upper class uh, suburb in the United States from an Asian American background. I think it caught everyone by surprise, but you know, you never, you actually never know what people are being exposed to online and which content they consume. And I believe that that person was indoctrinated and uh, filled with Jew hatred. And I hope that uh, the law will pros- prosecute him as it should. Well, just for your information, uh, uh, in Australia we're also experiencing this kind of thing and it happened at, uh, at Sydney University that uh, the Vice-Chancellor Mark Scott took steps to prevent an event entitled uh, Palestine, the case for global intifada planned by the socialist group Solidarity. He stopped it from taking place last week. The posters invited students to discuss the revolutionary strategy for freeing Palestine and overturning the system that causes Palestine's oppression and breeds colonial violence and call for a global intifada. So it's happening uh, at our doors as well, for your information, Ilan. So uh, a chapter of your organisation in, in Australia probably would be most welcome. Uh, we can mm-hmm. see uh, if we can uh, enable that in some way. And going to another example, this one uh, perhaps uh, being a, a good uh, uh, turn of events was at Brandeis University where they banned Students for Justice in Palestine saying that the group openly supports Hamas. So what's happening at Brandeis? Yeah, so Brandeis University it's actually a club where we do have a chapter of ours uh, since the beginning of the academic year. So Brandeis University started an SSI club around August. There are two very interesting developments at Brandeis before SGP was banned as well something to note that uh, the student government proposed a resolution to condemn Hamas. For the people who don't know, Brandeis University started by Jewish people. This is, we're talking about a private Jewish university. And uh, a resolution that spoke and wanted to condemn Hamas at the Brandeis student government has failed to pass on the first attempt. And that was also the moment when we decided to break the news a little bit and to let know, let people know that at Brandeis University such a resolution has failed. And again, this is not the problem of the administration because the administration is actually doing the right thing. But it only shows the issues in the student government and it only shows the problems of our supposed to be future leaders where they cannot even condemn Hamas, a recognized terror group. Now... After that happened, the administration, of course, got involved. The resolution has passed. And next thing you know, uh, last night, around um, evening time, 
and the news were um, delivered saying that Brandeis University banned students for justice in Palestine for openly supporting terrorism and uh, calls for incitement for, towards violence. And um, I hope that this is not the last university that will do so. We know that uh, earlier in the month, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis banned, issued a, issued the order to ban students for justice in Palestine in public universities in the state of Florida. Brandeis have followed as an individual in university, not uh, as it was directed by the state. And I sure hope that we have uh, 49 states to go and uh, thousands more universities to go over. We need to ban SJP for supporting Hamas and promoting terrorism on campus. And moving across the U.S. Uh, to the University of Michigan, uh, you don't have a chapter there, I guess, Yelan. Actually. We do. We do. So during the month of October 7, during the month following the October 7 attack, uh, students from Michigan were connected to us by actually another friend of ours from Duke University, the founder of our chapter in North Carolina. And uh, at Michigan, we managed to put together a group. And their first uh, activity was actually to counter-protest an SGP event in Ann Arbor. So in Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, and by the way, for the people that might not know, Michigan, a big hub for Palestinian students and uh, Palestinian uh, diaspora, so to speak. Uh, American Representative Rashida Talibi, uh, she was just censored in U.S. Congress about 20 minutes ago. She's coming from Michigan. But uh, there was a big counter-protest, 1,000 people, 1,000 people, even more than that, showed up to protest for Hamas against Israel and our chapter the first thing that they needed to do they needed to show up and to counter protest 20 of our students came out with Israeli flags with Israeli banners with banners of students supporting Israel and again the numbers we were not even matched up it was 20 to 1000 but uh, the good thing was that after the event and after the counter protest our group already had 200 members in their chats, in their inside chats. And another good positive thing that happened was that when the Fox News at Ann Arbor came to cover the event in Michigan, the title of the article was Pro-Palestinian Students Protest on Campus and the Clash with Pro-Israel Students. Okay, and half of the article is dedicated to interviewing our students. And I only always ask myself the question, what would happen if our 20 students would never show up? The news would report pro-Israel students, pro-Palestinian uh, pro students protest on campus. There would be not a single mention to someone who supports Israel in such an article. So it's always good to show up. It's always good to come out there, even if we're outnumbered. And uh, only good things can happen out of it. Not be afraid. That's the number one lesson. For anybody who's just tuned in, I'm speaking with uh, Ilan Sinolikov, who is the founder of Students Supporting Israel, a pro-Israel grassroots movement. The Biden administration, Ilan, is warning in the US schools and colleges that they must take immediate action to stop anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on their campuses, citing an alarming rise in threats and harassment. Now, Ilan, in all seriousness, do you think Islamophobia is any concern at this time? And if there is condemnation of Islamic behavior, why is it even called Islamophobia? at this particular stage in uh, in the game? You know, um, I'm not going to lie to you. 
to say that uh, Islamophobia is taking place on our campuses is just a joke. You know, I must say uh, the Biden administration is doing a lot of good things for Israel by standing with Israel in the strongest way that the United States could possibly stand. But uh, the whole talk that is going on about Islamophobia on college campuses is just ridiculous. You know, I have yet seen a pro-Israel student or a Jewish student goes to beat up uh, Palestinian students or their supporters that support Hamas. I have yet seen Zionist or Jewish students ripping up flyers of hostages, ripping up flyers of uh, groups that are not uh, supporting Israel and openly support Hamas. The only thing that I've seen is the other side around. So to say that there is also like uh, this fight against Islamophobia, it's uh, carrying away from the messaging. It's um, this attempt, I think, this false attempt to try to be uh, liked or try to stay some sort of, uh, some way balanced in this whole conversation. But there is no balance here. There is no battle between two narratives. There is a side that fights terrorism and it protects its civilians and citizens. And there is another side that supports it and has no issue with murdering Jews on a Saturday morning on Simchat Torah on a holiday. So this whole talk about Islamophobia should be taken out of the conversation, in my opinion. And uh, let's focus on the main things. Let's focus on the rise of anti-Semitism. According to the Anti-Defamation League, anti-Semitism has risen by 400% since October 7th. I don't need to go too far. You have seen what happened in Australia at the beginning of the war, when people were chanting outside of their opera house, uh, <laughs> fuck the Jews. You know, I don't need to... You take this conversation to North America, it happens in your own backyard. So what we are dealing with right now is that when the state of Israel defends itself, Jewish communities all across the world are being attacked. A lot of people have an issue that the Jewish people know and can defend themselves in 2023. So this is the case. We need to focus on the main topic, which is the fight against anti-Zionism, the fight against anti-Semitism, the fact that there is so many people in our Western countries, let it be Australia, the UK, France, Canada, United States, that support terrorism. Ask yourselves how they got here to begin with, and also what are we going to do and how we're moving this ball forward. You know, I'm also very disturbed by this uh, false moral equivalence uh, between the fight against anti-Semitism and the calls to stop Islamophobia. Uh, the incidents of uh, anti-Semitism are quite horrendous. And uh, when they are citing examples of Islamophobia, there are no examples. All they do is uh, refer to a register of uh, where there are uh, complaints. It seems that uh, the authorities are so concerned about a burgeoning uh, Muslim community, especially in Australia, where we see the numbers uh, of uh, Muslims being seven to eight times that of the uh, Jewish population, that uh, they want to see themselves as being against racism right across the board. But uh, this is really uh, uh, very misguided. I think you, you've already said that, and I have to strongly agree with you. You know, sometimes you just need to take a stance. You know, you can't try to be liked by everyone. You need to take a firm stance for the truth. And uh, this, is what try, this is what we try to do at the end of the day. You know, we're not here to play softball. You know, mm -hmm. there is a war going on. And when there is a war going on, we need to make sure that we toughen it up, we take our gloves off, and we go for the fight. You know, we go out for the fight. 
Um, and sometimes this fight, unfortunately, is even physical. You know, we have seen what happened at Tulane University when there was an uh, anti-Israel protest taking place on one side of the street. Our students were protesting on the other side of the streets. And all of a sudden, a red pickup truck pulls up and two people in that pickup decided to whip out an Israeli flag with a lighter and start attempting to burn it. I must say there was one brave student who sprinted and grabbed the flag before it was burned, but a fist fight has started, and a Jewish student needed to go to the ER with a broken nose because one person punched him. So what is happening right now, it is a fight of good versus evil. You know, and there is no two narratives here. There is a good that needs to win, and there is evil and Hamas and all of their supporters that need to be defeated. Of course, although this didn't occur on a university campus, it occurred in a street protest. Uh, we have a case of a 69-year-old man that uh, died at a protest when he was apparently clubbed by uh, a pro-Palestinian uh, demonstrator. Yeah, yeah, that happens, you know. Again, when Israel is defending itself, Jewish communities all over the world are being impacted. And uh, we have seen what happened in Los Angeles. We have seen what's going on in the colleges. We have seen what's going on in other countries, in France. Earlier this week, a 30-year-old Jewish woman in Lyon uh, was stabbed twice in her door. And the person who stabbed her twice also drew a swastika on her door on on his way out. So this is what we're dealing with. But again, uh, in every generation and generation, there are the people that come and try to kill us. And in every generation, we're able to unite and we're able to survive and we're able to win. And this is no different now. This is the fight of our generation, and this is the fight that we must win because we just can't afford to lose. And just to wrap up with you, Ilan, uh, just to announce that on the 14th of November at 1 p.m. at the National Mall in Washington, D.C., the Students Supporting Israel Movement, yours, will be joining hundreds of thousands of Zionists at the National Mall for the largest and most important demonstration within our lifetime in solidarity of support for the Jewish State of Israel. What's being planned for this event? And hopefully it's on the scale that uh, the advanced publicity seems to be describing it as. Yes. Um, next week on Tuesday, uh, myself included hundreds of our students from all across the country and uh, hundreds of thousands of people will be coming to Washington, D.C. for the largest show of solidarity for the state of Israel. And in my opinion, it would be the largest um, protest in American Jewish history. In in the 1980s, the Jewish uh, community gathered in Washington, D.C. on a Super Sunday to protest uh, the Soviet Union president who came to town. A quarter million of Jews came out to protest and um, said, let our people go. You know, let the Jewish community get out of the Soviet Union and uh, arrive at their promised land and their home, which is Israel. My family was one of those families that left the Soviet Union. And uh, what I've seen nowadays, it's that uh, the entire Jewish community will be coming. I have not seen such an energy in 12 years of me being in this activism world. I know that at Yeshiva University, which is a big university in New York City, they canceled all classes and they're charter bus- renting charter buses to bus their students to D.C. at Columbia University. The Hillel booked charter buses to bus their students to Washington. 
at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Again, buses are driving students to Washington. Our students are flying to D.C. from Las Vegas, from Tulane, from Texas. Uh, tickets from Florida right now to go to Washington, D.C. on that Tuesday are almost $1,000 a ticket. There's no more tickets on the planes to go to Washington, D.C. So we're talking about a big day, uh, a day that uh, hopefully one later in the future will be talking about it and sharing about it to our grandchildren and we'll be there to show solidarity with Israel, to fight anti-Semitism and to show that the Jewish community is united together. Well, I really appreciate talking to you today, Ilan, and uh, I look forward very much to uh, this event uh, next week and hope it's a glorious success. Thank you very much and have a good day, everyone in Australia. Thank you for having me on the call. Bye-bye, Ilan. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Alan Chinelnikov, who is the founder and president of the International Students Supporting Israel Movement. In the Senate this week, during question time, the Australian Greens Party walked out of the Senate in protest at the Labor government's stance on the Israel-Gaza conflict in what was a cheap stunt. Let's have a listen to how the situation evolved, with Senator Patterson challenging the government's deputy leader to respond to how the government is handling the use of inflammatory language at the moment. The response by Senator Farrell was absolutely pathetic, as he totally avoided answering the question, with the Speaker complicit in allowing him to get away with it. Does the government reject inflammatory language and accusations, such as those accusing Israel of genocide? Mr Farrell. Um, Thank you, President. Thank you, uh, Senator Patterson. Um, The government uh, has made it uh, very clear um, that it uh, condemns Uh, the action of uh, Hamas, uh, a terrorist uh, organisation. And, of course, um, uh, we came to this parliament uh, with a a joint resolution uh, following the terrible uh, events uh, uh, in Israel as a result of the attack by uh, Hamas. Um, What I do want to reject, though, is the attempts by the opposition to... Uh, gain political advantage and score political points out of the, terri- the terrible, terrible, tragi- the terrible Order. tragedy, Order. the terrible tragedy uh, that's going on in the Middle East uh, at the uh, at the at the, at the moment. Well, and, and I'm giving you a straight answer, uh, Senator Patterson. Uh, thank you, Madam President. Again, on direct relevance, I asked whether the government would condemn those accusing Israel of genocide. The minister has not yet responded to that question. I believe the minister is being relevant, and I'll. Uh, had you finished your comments, minister? Thank you, Thank you. Um, Senator Faruqi. My question is to the minister representing the prime minister. The state of Israel is carpet bombing Gaza, targeting civilians and committing war crimes for the world to see. So far, Israel has massacred almost 10,000 Palestinians. Gaza has become a graveyard for children. People are watching whole families being blown to bits. Hospitals, schools, mosques, homes, refugee camps have been reduced to rubble. Yet the Labour government continues to shield Israel from any accountability. 
The UN General Assembly has overwhelmingly called for an immediate ceasefire, a resolution which this government shamefully abstained from. Tens of thousands of people have marched across Australia and are calling for the Australian government to call for an immediate ceasefire. Will the Labour government commit to calling for an immediate ceasefire Thank today? Thank you, Senator Faruqi. The time for answering has expired. Before I call the minister, I'm going to ask for silence across the chamber. This is a very, very serious issue of which there are many perspectives and everyone is entitled to their perspective and the minister is entitled to be heard in silence. Minister Farrell. Uh, thank you, President, and I uh, thank uh, Senator Faruqi for her, uh, her question. Um, uh, of course, we have uh, all witnessed uh, uh, devastating uh, loss of innocent life uh, in, the, uh, in the Middle East uh, that, uh, of course, started with the, uh, the attack by uh, Hamas uh, on uh, innocent civilians in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Israel. Um, we, uh, as a government, have affirmed uh, Israel's right to defend itself after that uh, horrific attack. Uh, and uh, we've also said this, and I saw the uh, Foreign Minister reiterate this, that uh, this, week, uh, this weekend, uh, that it also matters uh, in the way in which uh, Israel uh, responds to, uh, to this completely unjustified attack by uh, Hamas. Uh, this means that Israel must observe international law uh, and the uh, rules of war. Um, nobody, 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 no. Um, Minister Farrell, please resume your seat. I called for silence. That was intended. That message is intended for every single senator in this place, including you, Senator Shoebridge, and I believe you, Senator Mackenzie. Minister, please continue. No, nobody, nobody wants to uh, see uh, innocent uh, lives uh, lost in this uh, in this um, terrible uh, set of circumstances, um, and it matters that uh, innocent civilians uh, should not pay for the horrors uh, perpetrated by uh, Hamas. Uh, and it also matters uh, for Israel's uh, own security, uh, which faces grave risk if this uh, conflict uh, spreads and. I think we've already seen over the weekend the potential of um, it spreading in the north and, uh, and in the east. Um, the humanitarian situation in Gaza is, uh, is dire and uh, human suffering is widespread. And the Australian uh, government has consistently called for the protection of civilian lives and safe, unimpeded and sustained humanity. The time for answering has expired. Senator Faruqi, first supplementary. The coalition is morally bankrupt when it comes to Palestine, and Labor has shown itself to be heartless, gutless cowards. You are watching the massacre of thousands of Palestinians by Israel, and you are not condemning Israel. You refuse to call for an immediate ceasefire. Well, we are not going to sit here and watch you pat yourselves on the back for doing nothing. Weasel words are not going to stop war crimes. Today, we bring the people's protest into parliament. Free, free Palestine. Uh, thank you, Senator Fariki. Uh, Minister Farrell, that was a statement, so. Order, order, Senator Hanson. Order, order, Senator Sheldon. Uh, did you want to respond, Minister? Sorry. 
Ahora, ahora, ahora. Minister Farrell, um, did you wish to respond? Yeah, President, I completely reject the implications in the question by uh, Senator uh, uh, Faruqi. Um, what has happened in the, the Middle East in the, the last month is a terrible set of, um, set of circumstances. Um, uh, the unjustified, uh, illegal uh, attack on uh, uh, innocent Israeli citizens um, on the uh, 7th of uh, October was a terrible set of um, events. And, of course, we now see um, the consequence of that in, uh, in Gaza and, and in, uh, uh, in Palestine. Um, um, I, don't think, I don't think any particular political party seeking to make um, hay out of this terrible situation is going to advance the position in Australia. And, and whether it's the coalition trying to take a, a political advantage of it or the Greens, uh, the, the government has a sensible... Um Thank you, Minister. The time for answering has expired. What a shameful session in the, uh, in the Senate. Senator Farrell acting on the behalf of the government uh, was uh, appalling. Weasel words coming from him, not uh, for the reasons that Faruqi uh, were calling the government as having expressed weasel words, but uh, his, uh, his response is really uh, quite, quite weak and, uh, and shameful. The Greens leader, Adam Banton, and his deputy, Marine Faruqi, are playing cheap politics to wedge Labor and pick off inner-city progressive voters by weaponising tragic scenes in the Middle East that were sparked by murderous Hamas terrorists. The Greens, who will potentially hold the balance of power if Labor's vote tanks in 2025, are seizing on divisions inside the Albanese government and international protests led by left-wing activists in tandem with Palestinian extremists who have one goal, the destruction of Israel. Fanning the flames of division amid ugly scenes of anti-Semitism around the world and in Australia, the Greens conveniently whitewashed Hamas terrorists, having murdered more than 1,400 Israelis and taken more than 200 as hostages in Gaza. When the Greens walked out of the Senate chamber, as you heard during that audio clip, they should have promised never to come back. Never again. Never again, never again, that was the last time. Never again, never again, I said that last time. Lack of understanding and patience for communication. Got me feeling like there's no more point in trying to make this work. Next, I'll play an interview with Elana Engel, the daughter of ex-Aussies, which she gave to the foreign press. Elana is a dentist and volunteers with the Dental Forensic Unit of the Israel Police. It's not easy listening by any measure to hear her descriptions, but I think it's very important that this gets a wide as coverage as possible. Hi, my name is Elana. I'm a dentist. I have a practice. Um, and for the last 10 years, I've been, I, I've been volunteering with the dental forensic unit in the police. Um, on October 7th, like everybody in our country, I woke up hearing the devastating news of communities down south that were being attacked by Hamas terrorists, along with rockets all across the country. We were told to get ready and be on standby because most likely there'll be civilian victims. Little did we know how many were coming. That Saturday night, our 
team has arrived here and we've been here ever since in shifts. My first shift was on Sunday, October 8th. The next day I came here and like I said, I've been, I've been with this unit for 10 years. I've seen many different sorts of disasters and similar to my colleagues, I've never seen something as horrible as what I've seen, both in terms of the numbers, the numbers of civilians who were arriving. Um, our unit helps identify the civilians and there were truckloads of women, men, children, babies, the elderly. We started working. What we do as dentists is we examine the bodies, we take x-rays of the bodies. Sometimes when the bodies are too burnt, we can't x-ray them, we take a CT scan in order to get dental records so that we can then compare them with dental records of missing people in order to make a match and identify a victim and bring them back to their loved ones to bury. Uh, the amounts that we were dealing with, I've never dealt with. It was just, we were working and working and then we hear a bus, a, a truck just arrived with 70 more bodies and a few hours later a truck is coming with 150 bodies and not only the amount of people, the amount of civilians that have bodies that have been arriving, but the extent of, of the injuries were horrific. I saw young women and young men who were shot completely, their faces, their necks, their bodies full of bullet holes. I saw people who were slashed in the throat. We got some severed heads without bodies that we needed to check the teeth. We saw elderly people whose skulls were crushed. There was no face sometimes left, nothing for us to be able to identify with. We've seen bodies of people who were tortured, who were mutilated, and only yesterday, we last night, we made a, an identification, we made a positive ID of a box, a little box that arrived with ashes and bone fragments. And within these fragments, there was part of a jawbone that had some implants with crowns, some dental implants. The body had been so severely burnt, there was nothing left, and the teeth didn't even survive, but these implants survived. We were able to make a positive ID. Um, that body belonged to a 70-year-old woman who had been burned alive in her bomb shelter. Her son was looking for her, was looking for her body. Her husband had already been identified. And last night we were able to identify her and uh, at least bring her son some sort of closure by identifying his loved ones. Um, the sights, the smells, the enormity of the disaster is something none of us will ever forget. And uh, I hope that none of you ever have to experience anything remotely close to what we've been dealing with. Yes, that's very hard indeed to, to listen to. Yesterday, November the 7th, marked one month since the horrific massacre carried out by Hamas terrorists in southern Israel and the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war, which Israel must win. Have any of the military goals been met? How have the IDF's tactics changed over the past month and what does the latest phase of the IDF's manoeuvres inside Gaza 
mean for the hostages in Hamas captivity? What are the biggest challenges still facing the IDF? And what can we expect next? Colonel Reserves Itamar Yar is former Deputy Head of the National Security Council in Israel. He is the Director of Commanders for Israel's Security. There are three main goals for the Israeli operation or for the Israeli war. And these three are the following. One of them is to destroy the military capabilities and the terrorist capabilities of the organization called Hamas-ISIS. They call themselves Hamas. In fact, they are Hamas-ISIS and they are more extreme than uh, ISIS in, in many terms. The second one is to dismantle or to neutralize the effective control of Hamas on the population of Gaza. We need to remember Hamas took over as part of uh, free elections uh, 15 years ago. From that point on, there is no democracy in in Gaza. And uh, in fact, they control everything there. And everybody that uh, would like to share another view disappear in a short time. And the third mission of this uh, war, as uh, Israel is concerned, is to bring all those that were kidnapped, civilians and soldiers, uh, kids, women, and men, back home. Until now, uh, what you saw already and what you see these days is more or less the basic Israeli uh, plans regarding war against Hamas. It's not a surprise that we had to fight Hamas. The surprise was in three main elements. First of all, the Israeli intelligence failed on uh, identifying the timing, a great failing. The second failing, and perhaps it's even bigger failing, is that the Israeli side didn't realize how big will be the Hamas operation. And the third one, is have nothing to do with intelligence, has a lot to do with the fact that the readiness uh, along the Israeli-Gaza line was in a very low level. These are the failings. The idea that the Hamas will want to kill Israelis and to do whatever they can to kill as many Israelis that they can is not a surprise, and the Israeli intelligence knew it. But we were not ready because the three elements that I just mentioned. Let's go on. Until now, uh, things are going more or less according to the plans. When I say plans, it's not, these are not the plans that we had before October 7th. These are the plans that the Israeli armed forces, under, of course, the uh, political and the decision maker, the civilian decision maker level plan based on the new situation in Gaza after October 7th. These are not the same plans. So after the situation changed dramatically on the ground, the military had to plan again, of course, to use the original plans, but to update them to the new situation. The new situation, not only what the Hamas have done and the surprise uh, that we were taken, uh, but also the two weeks of preparations that the uh, IDF had using the Air Force capabilities, using ground capabilities, 
using uh, special forces that went in during the first two weeks, and of course, the damage on the ground. It means that the area looked different and you need to have updated uh, plans. Uh, according to these plans, what is happening in the last two weeks, I will not call it a success. I will call it that things are going according to the plans. The IDF uh, achieved, let's say, most of what they expected to achieve in this period of time. It means that we are not in a, a real hurry. We would like, or the IDF, uh, uh, excuse me that I say you, we, every time, uh, because I feel as an Israeli, but I don't represent the IDF and, of course, not the government. The plans mean that they go step by step. They go step by step. They use operational field intelligence. They use information that they get from software and hardware that they find in the tunnels and in buildings and in uh, all kinds of facilities. They use information that they got from uh, Hamas activists that were captured, and they use intelligence that other agencies collect from uh, Gaza itself and from other areas. We need to remember what they are doing now have uh, tactic goals. One of them is to neutralize the capabilities, the Hamas capabilities, to uh, launch rockets and missiles. It doesn't mean that the military succeed to uh, destroy all of them, but we see evidence that much of these operational capabilities were gone. It doesn't mean that the Hamas don't have and will have in the near future capabilities to launch more missiles and more rockets, but in very in a different type of operation with uh, fewer rockets and missiles compared to what they have done or they used earlier. Another goal on the tactical and operational level is to destroy every building and every site that we see fire come from to the ground forces, to the uh, airplanes and UAVs, and uh, of course, as I mentioned, rockets and missiles to destroy all these facilities. More than it, to destroy buildings that the ground forces believe that are potential threats to the forces on the ground. You could see, watching the TV reports, that bulldozers, military bulldozers, are very active as part of this operation. This is one of the main lessons that the Israeli forces took from uh, the operation in Lebanon, uh, the first Lebanon war in 1982, that bulldozers are very effective. They are doing a very good job. The job that they are doing is, first of all, to destroy what needs to be destroyed. And I mentioned it already. The second one is to make sure the tunnels will collapse and uh, everything that is under the ground, that's not everything, but much of what is underground will collapse using the bulldozers. And we need to remember, everybody speak about tunnels. It's not only tunnels. They they use the the expression tunnels, but they mean tunnels that connect one place to another one. But it means also rooms and and big areas, underground areas, that uh, have within them headquarters, communication centers, uh, logistics, ammunition, centers, 
and everything that is under the ground. And as we know, the Hamas have done a, a good job, I would say, on building some kind of an underground town uh, under the buildings, under areas in Gaza. And this is a very important part of the ground operation. More than it, uh, the ground forces need to neutralize still Hamas fighters and, and Hamas activists that still don't understand that it's over for them. It's only a matter of time until uh, they will uh, be dead. So going into the area, take control on more and more areas within what we call the north of the uh, Gaza Strip, including the city of Gaza, uh, there are still people that you need to fight against them and to kill all of them one by one or to capture them, of course. Uh, another very important element and goal of the ground operation is to uh, collect information about the uh, hostages and you to use this information to try to uh, get to at least some of these people to try to uh, know more about others. One of the areas that for me personally, I don't have a classified information, but it seems to me that the area of, of uh, Shifa hospital became some kind of a symbol of what is happening in Gaza, not to speak about the fact that under Shifa, we have the main, the main Hamas command and control center. This was the place where is the main Hamas headquarter. It's the main communication center. Uh, of course, as it was published already, the leaders of the Hamas are not there. They escape to other places. But still, to capture the place itself, it's, it's crucial to get information, to dismantle their systems, and to find those that are still there, including uh, senior Hamas people. In the South, we have a, a different situation. First of all, the South is populated by a million and a half people, perhaps even a bit more. Let's say that half of them are people that don't live in the south of Gaza, but when the, after where the operation started, most of them before the ground operation, but some of them as part of the ground operation pressure. This caused some kind of a humanitarian crisis there, and there are efforts to try to help these people there, but we need not to forget that even in the south of the Gaza Strip, there are Hamas fighters and Hamas supporters and Hamas activists and families of Hamas uh, people. It's a huge popular area. And in this area, uh, Israel declared that uh, we or the Israeli forces will treat the south of Gaza absolutely different from the north of Gaza. It doesn't mean that the Israeli forces will not attack when they will find Hamas facilities or Hamas activists in the south, but the IDF take by consideration that many, many, many of these people that are there are civilians. There is another important uh, element that we need to remember. Uh, we all, uh, we, I mean, uh, all the Israelis, uh, I believe that it's, uh, it's the main issue now on the agenda of the entire world, what will happen once the Israeli operation 
will be finished. For that, as far as I understand, the only option is some kind of an international force, part of its military, part of its civilian, uh, that will take control after the Hamas system will collapse. I speak about international group. Uh, this international group will be mainly based on Arab uh, countries that understand that Hamas-ISIS is the main threat to themselves. Now, all of them, if not most, let's say most of them, but we can say almost all of them, say in public something else. They say that the main problem is humanitarian crisis now. They are right, there is a crisis, but they are worried of what is happening in Gaza after uh, the Hamas uh, control will collapse. I can guess that uh, European countries, the United States that already declare and others, will not be happy to send people on the ground. And the only way to do it will be a group of regional parties. This is what I believe, and I think in this way I represent the Israeli uh, thinking in general, we are not those that will take a responsibility on what is happening in Gaza uh, the day after, and we believe that the day after need to be controlled in Gaza by a Palestinian authority, the current one, a different one, it's not us to decide, but no Palestinian group or authority will be able to go in and take control from the Israelis. Uh, there will be some kind of a gap period of time when international or Arab group will have to do it, and then they will have to transfer it to a Palestinian system that, of course, will have a lot to do with the West Bank. It must be some kind of a system that will have control in the West Bank and in Gaza. They are not uh, two separated areas, but this is something that can't happen immediately after the military operation, the Israeli military operation, will be finished. I see on the Arab media, and I see even that some of the uh, Arab leaders speak about the intention of the Israeli side to send the uh, Palestinians from Gaza to Egypt and the Palestinians from the West Bank to Jordan. Yes, there are some Israelis that uh, dream about such a situation. I know some of them. This is not really what is happening. This is not a real idea. To be very frank, I'm surprised that the Israeli government until now didn't declare publicly that we don't have any intention to send anyone not to Egypt, they're not into Jordan. So you've just been hearing uh, Colonel Reserve's Itamar Yar, who is uh, former deputy head of the National Security Council. He is the director of the Commanders for Israel Security, and he was speaking at a media briefing uh, yesterday. The next week on the ABC's Q&A program, two anti-Semites who specialise in anti-Israel hate speech, namely the UN Rapporteur for the Palestinian Territories, Francesca Albanese, President of Nasser Mashni for uh, Australian Palestinian Anti-Zionist Network, Nasser Mashni, uh, will, be, will be on the panel. Joining these two misfits will be Mark Liebler, a Jewish community leader, and Dave Sharma, former Australian ambassador to Israel. Nasser Mashni has a achieved a conspicuous presence in our media. 
unfortunately, enabling him to trot out his disgusting anti-Israel tropes, sprinkling them liberally with lies and propaganda. Self-respecting journalists with a moral compass like James Campbell in The Herald Sun and Andrew Bolt on Sky News have exposed how he twists this appalling atrocity that was committed by Hamas into an issue of colonialism and illegal occupation of Palestinian land. On 3ZZZ tonight, between 9 and 10pm, on uh, Morris Klein's Lahayan program, you'll be able to listen to a short audio clip that I've produced for that program that exposes Mashni for the sham that he is. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection. JR 88 FM